Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put Fika in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, good morning, Gordon Pratt. Thank you for coming back and, and having a, another uh, session here with Fika with Anika. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, from what I understand, uh, your um, involvement with uh, ants. And, you know, all I ants know of ants, yeah. ants and caterpillars. My only relationship with ants is, of course, you know, the ones that come into the kitchen or the ones that bite your toes when you're right. watering. So uh, I know that you probably have a totally different point of view than, uh, than the average person when it comes to the ants. So um, I'm going to let you loose at this point. Well, to begin with, there are over 800 species in North America of ants. So there's a lot of different kinds of ants. And there are 10 different subfamilies of ants. All, all ants are in what's called the formica, or formicity is what the family's called. And then there's a bunch of subfamilies that you have. And there are okay. over 800 species. And when you include the ones that have been brought in from other parts of the world, there's around 825 in total. Diversity of ants is incredibly high, but they are, on the evolutionary scale, about where we are within the insect world, because they farm, they enslave other ants, they, they go out on marauding to get other ants, they, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on, they, they grow their own mushrooms, they uh, grow their own cattle, you can see here, for instance, they're tending uh, aphids. Right. Most gardeners know that, that right. relationship. Right. Well, ants also have a very poor visionary system. They only have a few ocelli on the two sides of the head, so they don't see a lot. So their ability to move around and communicate is all by chemical means. They, do, they have a lot of different kinds of pheromones. One, so it's by scent or by taste? By scent, yes. Okay. By scent. Well, or you could, yeah, it's it's basically by scent because they, but there is taste involved as well. One of the pheromones is trail pheromone. And this is so that, you know, sometimes when you're out wandering around, you'll see that ants are following a path and they're all following the same path together. Yes. Some will be returning and some will be going out. Well, what they've done is they put down a trail pheromone along that trail, so they will follow that. And uh, you'll notice that even in your house, where you know the ants are, you know, moving to a, you know some sort of right. crumb, breadcrumb or something, right, from the or kitchen cookie sink. crumb, or right, yeah. And they, the amount of pheromone that's required for this trail is very, very, very small. They say that you can do a trail around the world with just a picogram of pheromone. 
That's just, uh, mind-boggling. It is, because, uh, you know, we know how small a gram is. Yes. We know how small a milligram is, because that's one one-hundredth of a gram. Yes. Then we know what a microgram, which is even much, much smaller than that. Yes. A picogram is a really, really small amount. And and to say that that can make a trail around the world is, is hard to believe. But, I mean, a picogram has a lot of different individual molecules involved in it. And then there's what's called brood pheromone, which is, you know, it tells the ant, I'm your kid, you got to take care of me. And uh, that, that they therefore take care of it. Whenever they taste this brood pheromone or smell, smell this brood pheromone, they, they take care of them, just like it's, it's one of their own. And this is what the caterpillar's gotten involved in. It's broken into the chemical communication system of the ants. These caterpillars have what's what's called lenticles, which produce brood pheromone, or some, what's actually, it's called a semiochemical that mimics the brood pheromone. And the ants think, ah, this is one of my kids, I better take care of it. So the ants actually go and feed and groom the caterpillar? Yes, that's the other thing, is the caterpillar has what's called a honey gland. And this honey gland produces um, sugars and amino acids. So the ant can stay with the caterpillar during the period that it's tending it. So wow, it's an ant bed and breakfast almost. Yeah, yeah, it sure Ooh. is. Sure is, yeah. Oh. Now, so I'm guessing then that the specific caterpillars have specific ants. It's not just a universal code. Right. The, the ones that they generally use are the ones that actually tend cattle or tend aphids or various other hemipterans. Now, when you say scales. cattle, you're not meaning actual cattle. Yeah. It's just it's a their relationship cattle, so, to them. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. And uh, there are like three sub subfamilies that do this. The biggest one is the formicide, which includes the formica species. And the formica species are the ones that have all this. They're about, they're over 100 species just in North America of formica. And some of them are very timid and are easily used as slaves. And some are very, very aggressive and go out and actually gather slaves. And then there are queens that can get into these colonies, that, you know, these timid colonies that, you know, that will accept foreign individuals and they will literally take over by producing just young of their own. And uh, they basically, you know, replace the workers of the, of the actual colony that it started in. So that the, the uh, original colony, which is a timid species of ant, takes in this foreign female, which is rather aggressive, but, you know, she uses them just like slaves, you know, hand and foot, take care of her. And then, you know, she produces her, all her progeny, and these, these progeny basically take over and, and uh, replace the, the ones that were originally it's, taking care of her. So it's a hostile takeover. It is a hostile takeover, yes. But another important thing about, about hymenoptera in general, which ants are a member of the hymenoptera. Hymenoptera is ants, bees, wasps. Um, there are some sawflies. So just a quick question. Are they an insect or a bug? Oh, they're a true insect. Okay, all right. Yeah. Insect is, is, covers more. Okay. The bug is only hemipterans. It's a, it's a much smaller group. Now, the, the average person calls every insect a bug, but uh, 
and some beetles they call bugs, but really the bugs there's, is a specific group. It's the hemipterans. Okay. So these these they're true insects, but um, they have a very different sexual system from us. You know, we have male, female, and it's a diploid system that requires a chromosome from the male and requires a chromosome from the female. Not so with 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 Hymenoptera. Hymenoptera, it's what's called a haplodiploid system. All males are haploid, all females are diploid. So, if an egg is laid unfertilized, she's producing a male. If wait, she, wait, wait. An unfertilized egg is actually producing uh, offspring. Right. Okay, that could explain why there's so many of them. Okay. Well, all those that you're seeing are females. They're all females. They're all diploid. Generally, the males don't, don't do anything other than just reproduce. But because she can decide what sex it, the progeny is, she either fertilizes or doesn't fertilize it. Now, if she's, she's very young and she doesn't have any males around, she can produce a pile of males and then mate with those males. This is so fascinating. It's like beyond the, the realm of sci-fi here. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> How nice to be able to pick and choose. Well, yeah, there's a tremendous advantage to that, as you, as you probably can think. I mean, if you're, if you're got a, like, you're, let's say you're a tarantula hawk, which is a wasp, which is a member of the Hymenoptera, she can decide whether she's going to put a, she get, if she gets a small tarantula, she can put in an egg, a male egg because that doesn't require as much nutrition. A male doesn't require as much nutrition as a female does. So when she gets a big tarantula, she can make the decision to give it a fertilized egg. If it's a small tarantula, she can give it an unfertilized egg. And so to keep the uh, tarantula alive for a longer period of time by using the male versus oh, the no, female? No. When, or what's the advantage of male versus female? No, it's just female? that uh, if you have a large tarantula, and you have only one egg on it, that will produce a nice oh. large tarantula hawk. If you have a small tarantula, it will produce a small tarantula. I understand, hawk. because it only lays one egg. Right. And when she uh, oviposits, uh, I mean, when she uh, gets the tarantula, of course, she paralyzes it so that the tarantula hawk larva will then be able to feed on live material until it's ready to complete development. Well, I, I, I sense a zombie movie coming on. Uh, is, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, all right, continue please. Well, th this is all valuable for, for the ant colony and maintaining ant colonies or maintaining bee colonies because, you know, with bees, if you lose the queen, you then have to replace it and, uh, you know, all sorts of methodologies in which you can do it. Um, the, one of the interesting things about these, these ants is that, uh, because they, they're communicating chemically, they have to respond to a lot of things in the environment. And one of the chemicals that they produce is what's called alarm pheromone. And the caterpillar has with also a mimic to this alarm pheromone. 
And the advantage of using it is it gets the ants all scurried up. And, uh, you know, let's say a parasitoid comes in. We call them parasitoids rather than parasites because with insects, a wasp that parasitizes a caterpillar doesn't let it live. It basically kills the caterpillar in the end. So being protected from parasitoids is a big good thing for, for these caterpillars. So these caterpillars then have brood pheromone, which makes the, the ant think uh, it's one of their own. They have what's called a honey gland, which provides food for the ant. And then they have this alarm pheromone, which gets the ant to scurry around when a, when a parasitoid or a predator of some form comes in to do harm to the caterpillar. So this, this, this is how, this is a mutualism that, that has, has actually formed between the, the ant and the caterpillar. Now the caterpillar is receiving a lot more benefit from this, but it's giving something back in order for the ant to be able to survive. Okay. I have held ants with the caterpillar for weeks. As long as the caterpillar is still living and growing, the ant will survive. But if you leave it in a container without any caterpillar, it's dead within a day. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a word mutualism. Could you please explain that versus uh, symbiotic? Uh, well, mutualism is a form of symbiosis. Their symbiosis can be a parasitic relationship, a commensal relationship. A commensal is where one is, is taking a benefit from the other and the other is not being affected. And then there's mutualistic relationships, which is where both members receive benefit from, from this interaction. In this case, one would see this is, this is an instance where both are receiving benefit. Now, not all caterpillars are doing this. Not all lysinid caterpillars that are involved with ants are actually producing, having a, have a honey gland. There are what are called coppers, which don't have a honey gland, don't have a reversible tube for alarm pheromone, but they have what is called dendritic seedy and lenticles. Could you repeat that? Dendritic seedy. Thank you. These are branch seedy. Seedy is a... It's a hair. Okay. It's an insect hair. It's, it's okay. kind of different. It's, it's made of chitin rather than... than the, what our hairs are made of. Okay. And uh, these dendritic seedy are obviously producing some sort of pheromone because I've watched the ants actually branching, you know, touching them with their antennae. And uh, they're also placed at nice uh, locations along the, uh, the surface of the body. Um, as an example, you, around the spiracle, which is, uh, they have a tracheal system that actually allows air to go in. It, we, they don't have a blood that, that moves around oxygen. All of the organs are actually uh, directly in contact with, with oxygen through these trachea, which are interbranched throughout the actual caterpillar. Are these the dots along the body of a caterpillar? They, yeah, they, you, they, you can see there's, there's these the, what are called spiracles or little which can be opened or closed. And uh, the reason that I bring this up is because this is where what are called tachinid flies enter and get into the actual caterpillar. So if you, know, if you get these ants to constantly move around to, to these areas where there's spiracles, you can actually prevent 
these tachinid flies larvae from entering. And these and and these this larva is uh, detrimental to the caterpillar. It's it's another parasitoid which goes in and actually, it it once it hatches it basically leaves nothing. The caterpillar is totally gone. It's it's just like alien. They come out and and they leave behind a carcass of the caterpillar. Okay, I get goosebumps <laughs> just yeah. thinking about it. Okay. And uh, they can come out of the, the actual caterpillar, or they can come out, you know, years later out of a chrysalis, or or out of a caterpillar years later, you know, because they they have to reach a certain size before the, the actual tachinid fly can hatch out. It's, and remember, we talked about diapause before. Some some caterpillars can diapause for multiple years. Right. I've had caterpillars go through diapause and come out of diapause and. and and rather than getting a nice, beautiful butterfly, I get this tachinid fly, which Ooh. kind of, uh, you know, since I reared the uh, caterpillar for the purpose of getting the butterfly, I was somewhat disappointed. I, I can only imagine. Instead. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, it, it, but it is interesting that they've broken into this chemical communication system that, you know, they actually are able to produce. Because just, just think of the evolution that had to be involved there. They aren't interrelated. They had to have somehow evolved the ability to produce these chemicals all on their own. And how did they do that? I don't think we really know. That's what keeps uh, professors like yourself, oh, yes, you know, right. yeah, <laughs> occupied. Well, it's, it's sleepless it's, nights. Yeah, well, it's it's taken some time just figuring out, you know, whether these chemicals are, are actually being produced. Okay. There had to be, you had to be able to collect a certain number of these lenticles, for instance, which is where the brood pheromone occurs, and actually dissect them out or you know, collect them, and then and then actually run them through a slurry of something to actually get the pheromone and be able to prove that, that you have the pheromone from those. Oh, how interesting. Um, so I, I think my question for you at this point is, I mean, I understand the symbiotic and the, the, the mutualistic, mutualistic relationship. So um, if I'm trying to eradicate the ants that are, to me, a pest, am I in somehow Am I uh, hurting a caterpillar that is probably an important uh, butterfly species or a moth species? Well, the, as far as I know, there are no moths. All of the caterpillars are, are in this large family called the Lycididae, which... Moths do not have caterpillars. Oh, they have caterpillars, but they're not associated with ants. Okay. All right. It's, all, it's really only a specific group. Some of these Lycidids... That are associated with ants, like the El Segundo Blue, the uh, Mission Blue. These are butterflies that actually have ant associations. There's there's a uh, blue in the east, for instance, that's uh, a member of the Melissa Blue, that uh, has a strong ant association. So that you know, not having you know somehow damaging the the ant population will damage this butterfly. But you're talking the native ant species, not okay. So what I'm thinking is like like the Argentine ant, the one that's such a pest in the, in the house. I believe that's the one that's yeah. That's, that's not a native ant though. Right. So it was that imported. Came from Argentina. And so it doesn't have a caterpillar uh, host or any association we have to be concerned about. 
I mean, my objective is to get well, the ants out of out of my kitchen sink, yeah. and out of my house. But am I doing any harm to to something? Is what I'm trying to get at. It, it, this this gets into somewhat complex issues because down at the El Segundo Dunes, the only ant that actually tends the El Segundo bloom at the El Segundo Dunes is the Argentine ant, as far Ooh. as we can tell. And the reason for that is the native ants are pretty much gone there. The and why are they gone? Because we, we did so much damage to them. Development? Yes. Okay. Um, there, there is what's called former Frank Curry there, but it's, it's, it's so, so low density now that it's not having an effect there. But all of the caterpillars I found there were associated with, with Argentine, unfortunately. The native ants, but when you go up, you find there's another population up around the Yale uh, Lompoc area which is in Santa Barbara, where there's an El Segundo, Dune, El Segundo Blue, they are associated with ant, with native ants. Dory Miramix, Insanus, uh, Campanotus, uh, Maritimus, um, Formica Mokai, um, Monomorium, uh, Hesperus, and Chromatic, no, not Hesperus, uh, it's... It's a species that I can't remember right now. But then right, there's yeah. chromatic aster uh, Hesperus. That's, that's the one that's Hesperus. Okay. Fika with Anika. Got an older car that's not working and is going to be too expensive to repair? KOYT Coyotes can pick it up, get top dollar for it, and use those funds to support ANZA Community Broadcasting. KOYT, your community radio station. For more info, call 951-763-5698. Be aware that scammers are posing as Social Security Administration personnel and calling unsuspecting people on their cell phones. The recorded call informs them that their social security number has been suspended and they will lose their benefits unless they press a number to speak to a representative. These phone scammers threaten to block a person's social security number and seize their bank account. Here are some tips if you receive a call like this. The Social Security Administration will never call you to threaten your benefits or tell you to wire your money. Never give your social security number, bank account information, or credit card number to anyone that contacts you by phone. If you suspect a scammer, hang up and call the Social Security Administration toll-free number 1-800-772-1213 to verify the reason for contact. You're listening to KOYTLP 971 ANZA. Welcome back to Pika with Anika. Let me show you uh, how different some of these uh, ants are. So to the uh, audience, we're right now looking at uh, Gordon's laptop. and um... These are some of the parasitoids. See how this this caterpillar is going to be dying because it's all these uh, parasites came out of the out of the caterpillar. 
This is a Braconid species, probably in a Panelise or something like that. Okay. Now, you, uh, Gordon, just so you know that most of our audience isn't speaking the, the uh, uh, not botanical names, the Latin names right. for, oh, for, for the species. So, um, the, those not, are, to, not to slow you down, but maybe if you could use uh, the common names instead. Well, Braconid is the common name. Well, go figure. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's a wasp. That served me right. It's, it's, it's a tiny parasitic wasp. Um, yeah, I can't really, I mean, there's a lot of common names that people probably will never recognize because okay. they're, they're just, they're this used amongst us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an esoteric. Okay. All right. But this, you can see these are the ants. This is a, uh, what's called an arrowhead blue. And the arrowhead blue is named it because it's got these arrowhead markings on the wing. Oh, I see that. Yes. It's a really, really rare species of, of, of butterfly. We have a good population up and around Garner Valley, and it feeds exclusively on lupin flowers and seeds. So it has a short season. It has a short season, and it's adapted to that season only. But so it, it doesn't migrate? No, it doesn't oh, okay. migrate. There's a lot of butterflies that don't migrate. This, this one only occurs in local populations. There is movement that occurs between populations, but generally it's, it's very localized. And you get actually very, very different populations where whether you're at one, you know, up at around 7,000 feet elevation or down at 2,000 feet elevation. But these caterpillars are associated with ants, and that's why they're only found in specific areas. So you, you not only require the lupin, you also require the specific ant. In this case, it's Formica pelicornis are now what's called Francuri. And uh, this is where the honey gland is, back here. But there's all sorts of dendritic seedy up here, which is attracting them. And you can see this is the caterpillar now feed. I mean, the ant now feeding on the honey gland of the caterpillar. And there's the honey gland again. You can just barely see it. It's, it's not a very obvious structure. So do they uh, take this caterpillar back back to, to to the home base or do they just leave the caterpillar where they find it and they, oh, and they and they go to it and this, farm it? In this case they leave it but there are there is a blue that occurred in England called it's a macrolinia species I think it's Alcon is the species name where the actual ant will take it down into the colony once it reaches a certain stage and it will just sit there pumping its submersible tubes, advertising, it's time to take me down, time to take me down, time to take me down. And then a bunch of ants come and, and actually take the caterpillar down into the colony. And what do you think the, the ant does, I mean the caterpillar does once it's pulled into the colony? Pupates? No. No? It feeds on, guess what? Larvae? Ant larvae. So, it completes development. It's a Trojan horse. Exactly. It's a Trojan horse, yeah. Oh. But this butterfly went extinct, or was extirpated. I, the, the species was not, didn't go extinct, but the actual population that occurred in England went extinct. And the reason that happened was they, they were too careful of managing the habitat. And What? That's, uh, that sounds counterintuitive. They it does, too yeah. Careful? They were too careful, yeah. They, they, they cut back the, you know, the, the vegetation. And they, oh. they removed uh, cattle and, and stuff like that, which was really useful for the ant. And when the ant disappeared, bye-bye butterfly. 
it just disappeared because of that. But this is an unusual circumstance. Yes. Now, there's, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on within the vicinity. There's, there's a, a species of a hair streak, which the caterpillar is, is armed like a tank and goes into the, into the ant colony and there's nothing the ants can grab onto it. You know, it just goes in and eats all the uh, ant larvae and, and it survives by being just like a tank. Oh my God. So, but anyway, these are the irreversible tubes that I'm talking about. It, they're generally kept within the body, but and when they're brought out, remember they, they produce what looks like alarm pheromone and the ants scurry around, checking out to see if there's where the predator is or the, or the parasite is. That, Okay, this, this is what the next one is oh, right. This is the one I wanted to show you. I wanted to show you the differences in sizes of the ants. This is a, a carpenter ant, which is what, this is one of the spe species of ants that actually tends the uh, El Segundo Blue up in Lompoc area. The carpenter ant, the same one that comes into the house and chews up your woodwork. Right. But this is a specific one. This is not okay. one that would normally get into your house. This is, but I mean, it, it's it, one it, of five hundred. Yeah, yeah. Campanotus is is genus of, of the carpenter ants, and there are a lot of species. I don't know how many species there are, but there are quite a few. Okay. And this is the Formica, which, like I said before, there's over a hundred species in North America. This here is a Dorymyrmex insanus. And that's Chromatogaster hesperus. You see that little tiny thing right there? I do. That's another ant species. So you can see the incredible size difference. Oh my God! There's a um, about a a hundredfold difference between the largest and the smallest. Right. Yes. So the carpenter ant is uh, like the I don't know. It's like a giant. Uh, uh, right. Ants. So we wouldn't probably never even see the smallest one. It's just a little red dot scurrying around somewhere. Yeah, it is pretty small. Okay, red or black or whatever color, right. How, how did you even capture that? Did you even know where to look for it? Oh, I found it on the actual caterpillar. See? Uh -huh. that's, that's a relatively small ant. That's the that's, that's one right there, the second one. That one there. Yes. And the nice thing about the small ones is there can be, you know, quite a few on there protecting the ant. So they can be, you know, situated all around. Whereas if you, you know, just got one ant, well, you're, you're depending on that one ant getting, oh, getting all over the place. But bigger is always better. You can scare a lot more parasites and predators away with a large ant than you can with a... The small ant, but this this ant is one of the most aggressive ants around. This is Formica moki. If you if you step on a colony, you will have hundreds of ants coming up your leg within a very okay. short period of time, and and they will leave a lot of painful welts. Yes, well, I don't know about welts, but they'll be they'll be sores on your legs mm -hmm. because it produces for, formic acid, which is why they why they call it Formica. I see.
Is that true for, well, obviously for that genus of... of uh, well, there are other ants that will do that too. But they but, also have the same chemicals. So when the you get the ones bitten? that you're probably get while you're working in the garden and what have you, the leaf cutter ants, or the harvester ants, they call them. They they also produce a very potent uh, sting. Yeah. And they will actually sting you. I I know there's like a really small ant that I don't see, but as I'm watering, if I'm wearing sandals, they'll come and they'll bite me like between my toes. And I'll get like a little, uh, uh, like a welt, or a, uh, and it itches and stings Those at are the fire same ants. time. We have non-native fire ant from Brazil, and we have a native fire ant called uh, Xylonite. Xylonops. Mm -hmm. I thought fire ants were larger than the ones that I oh, see in my garden. Fire they're ants are, they're very tiny. Okay. They're very, very small. Is that an imported species? We have a native species called the desert fire ant, and there's the non-native one, which is from Brazil. And they do best in uh, golf courses. Okay. Because they're adapted to a rather human environment. And uh, the, the golf courses provide that perfect habitat for them. Right, I know in the nursery industry, there's quarantine areas for the fire ant. They have to drench the soil and do things in order to move plants from one area to uh -huh. another, but that's where the imported fire ant, not for the native fire ant necessarily. I'm guessing... Well, yeah, you, I mean, you, because it's native, you, you don't really have the ability to, to... I mean, they're native. I mean, you can't get rid of a native species unless it's something like a, a mosquito that carries malaria or something. Oh, but that's, that's far-fetched. Yeah, but oh. something that just stings you and, and is actually part of the environment. You can't get rid of it. I mean, it's kind of unethical in a, in a sense. Of course. Okay. So that, but that's pretty fascinating. So this is a buckwheat that it's sitting on. Yeah, this is the Elsagunda blue, which feeds on dune buckwheat area. The larvae feed on the on that. Yes, a lot of the Lysander larvae they feed on very nutritious food, either fruits, um, seeds. Or developing leaves, which have you know a lot of food resources for them, and the advantage of that is that they all have excess in which they can use into producing a secretion in the honey gland. Okay, so the the larvae is not going actually for the nectar; it's the um, it's actually eating the seeds. The seeds. Yeah, the first two instars they will feed on the uh, pollen, and the last two instars. An instar is is between each shedding. So when a, when a caterpillar hatches from an egg, it's a first instar. When it sheds into the next, it you know sheds its exoskeleton, it goes into the next instar, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a blue generally has four instars. Okay, all right. And uh, well, the ant will help protect it, of course. There are, uh, just a sec here. I don't see where the arrow is anymore. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Good point. Now, there's there's a very, very rare blue called the San Amigdio blue, which actually has a caterpillar that feeds on saltbush and has a specific ant called Formica francurae, the ant that's associated with the arrowhead blue. And it also requires some sort of nutrient-rich organism for the uh, formica to uh, 
live on. And uh, this this is, uh, there's the caterpillar. In most cases, this is a scale that occurs on the actual food plant. So it only feeds on a specific food plant, requires some sort of scale and to, to benefit the ants. And then the ants have to be really common to protect these caterpillars. Now the scale is an insect. This is not a uh, vegetative scale. Right, yeah, it's, okay. it's an actual insect. It's, it's a member of the Hemipter. And they go through what's called a crawler stage in which they will go over to the spot and then they'll stick their proboscis into the plant and they'll actually start sucking the juices and grow and grow and grow until they, they reach this stage. And, and then they'll, if they're female, they will produce eggs and the, the males will hatch out, crawl around and fly around and mate with these sacks of, of eggs. Oh, how interesting. Yes. But okay. the ants tend these and they receive uh, nutrient re resources from these scales. And so without the ants, these scales disappear because they get parasitized. With the ants, they protect them from these parasites and predators, so they do real well when there's a lot of ants on the, on the actual. So there's a whole association that's, that's, that this actual butterfly depends on. And because of this, because it depends on this plant, depends on the scales, and depends on the ants, it only occurs in very few places. And there are only about a dozen known locations now left in Southern California. And some of those locations, in fact, most of them are only about an acre in size. This is not yes. like they, they cover a mountain range or something like that. This, right. There's only a specific patch where the ants and the plant and the scales, as well as the butterfly, all co-occur. And this is a butterfly that we're kind of concerned with. It's called the San Amigdio Blue. Mm. Which is this one here. Okay. It's a rather beautiful butterfly, but it's not all that big. It's only about that big in wingspan. All right. It looks like it's uh, almost like in a milkweed pod or something. Um, it, it's, it's nectaring on the uh, what's called Stenlea pinata, which is the desert plume. It's, oh, it's yes. a mustard. This is a mustard. This is a. These are flowers that are, haven't yet opened. Okay. Or maybe they're seed pods. Well, those are the flowers anyway. That aren't yet open. And this is a mated pair of the Santa Medio blue. I bet you um, can't guess which one's female, which one's male. <laughs> uh, we're looking at one that's, that's very female. colorful and one that isn't. Well, the, the one that isn't is in the shade. Oh, but you okay. can see that the, the big admin I do see that, for one, yeah. and there's a much smaller admin for the other. Right. And, uh, yeah, because the, the bigger admin one is the female, of course. Okay. She has to produce a lot of eggs, whereas the male, just, all he has to do is just produce sperm. This gives you a, a diagram of the actual caterpillar. There's the avertible tubes, there's the honey gland. And then they'll be dendritic seed. They'll be scattered along here, or along those spiracles. See those those dots there? I do. Dots. That's where the spiracles are located. And of course, each one of those spiracles will have a trachea leading into the actual caterpillar, which okay. will, which will so, feed the uh, right. oxygen. For some reason, we all associate, you know, the uh, the eating mechanism, the mouth, 
is you would think that that's what they're breathing from. That's projecting uh, (laughs) that they're human. Well, you know, with a butterfly, the the caterpillar and the adult are incredibly different. They're almost like two very, very different organisms. One speaks with a straw-like structure, a proboscis, which actually sucks its food. And the other one has really hardened mandibles, which actually chew their food. And, of course, one has has a pair of wings and the other one doesn't. And Mm -hmm. the legs on a butterfly are very long and and well-developed, whereas on a caterpillar, they're very short. They're almost like little little hooks. And then they have a bunch of pro-legs, where, of course, the butterfly doesn't have the adult butterfly. So let me ask you a gardening question, then. I know that oftentimes when you purchase a, a, a native plant and you put it into your garden that they will attract ultimately ants that are the demise of the plant. I'm talking about ceanothus, um, um, which is the uh, California wild lilac and um, the manzanitas. If you, I'm finding, well, I'm basing this on what I'm hearing uh, in gardening forums where people are saying, okay, so I've got like a a ceanothus, it's it's second year in the ground. And now it's attracted ants, and it's starting to, you know, to not do well. So they, they, there's discussions about different ways of dealing with this ant. Once they get rid of the ant, then the plant flourishes. So um, getting rid of the ants in a garden setting is very important. But I can't really see how an, an ant would be actually causing the problem, unless it's down in the root system. Or... It's actually harvesting, you know, protecting aphids on the actual ceanothus or whatever you planted into the crown. Because once you get a lot of aphids on there, they're basically sucking the, the plant dry. But the ant shouldn't be doing that. The, the aphids or, well, or the scales or whatever that, that, that they may be protecting on the, on the uh, ceanothus could be doing that sort of damage. I see. But they aren't going to be very attractive unless you're you're overwatering the plant too. Well, in a garden setting, isn't that pretty typical? That's what happens is people will overwater because they want the plants to grow quickly. And yes, ceanothus are incredibly sensitive to overwatering. You have to be really, really careful. There are a number of, of native plants. Once you plant them, you, you maybe go f- for a period of time in which there's a fair amount of rain still natural in the environment. But once it turns dry, you've got to stop watering it. And if you don't, you can actually cause fungi to, to happen at, along the roots. Is that number 36? <laughs> yes, it is. Ah, I thought I had turned my phone off. We're, we'll edit this part out. So. Oh, that's okay. Um, okay. But yeah, so I was just basing that question about the uh, the plant in the garden setting is because on the gardening forums where people are talking about planting native gardens, and we're talking people that are along the coast and, you know, the L.A. area or Orange County and so on, and, uh-huh. and they're buying from the, the commercial nurseries that are growing native plants and the inserting plant into the soil, and then a couple years later they develop this, this ant problem and um, Greg Rubin is a renowned uh, landscaper when it comes to natives and it's on his forums where he's discussed how to get rid of the ants 
Wow. Now, I don't know what ant it is, right. uh, but he's had success of eliminating the ant and the plant, the plant revives. So. Huh. Yeah. And, yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that one is. One is the other. Yeah, yeah. I understand. It's, you have to do, in order to prove the experiment, to you know, do the removal of the ant versus the non-removal ant. In fact, that's how they discovered that uh, the ant was an actual benefit to the larva because they, they set up these lupins, which they kept the ants off of and had lupins, which they allowed the ants to crawl up. You know, they have what's called tanglefoot, which you can put around the, the bottom of the plant yes. to protect, you know, protect the plant or protect it from having things crawl up it. It's so sticky that the ants get caught in it. And, uh, well, what they found was when you kept the ants off the lupins, you got tons of caterpillars that were parasitized. Whereas if you left them open and exposed and allowed the ants to just go crawl up and, and protect the caterpillars, there's a very low parasitism. I guess nature does have a reason for, right. for, for everything. Yeah, but does the point is you have to do these sort of experiments to prove that there's a direct relationship. Correct. It could be something that else, something that you did that didn't have an effect on ants. I mean, it had the effect on the ants, but also affected the survival of the ceanothus or whatever plant you're, you're talking about. All right. Okay. I would like to know why the ant is having the problem because the ant shouldn't be, unless it's a specific ant like, you know, harvester ant, which is, you know, take them off the leaves and what have you off the plant. I'll look into that and I'll yeah. get you some more information yeah. on that too. Okay. All right. Um, what else, Gordon? I know uh, there's probably a lot more to be asking you, but we're uh, 43 minutes into this interview at this point. Oh, okay. Well, so. <laughs> we, can, we can sort of end it there. Well, I think we can end it there. And so if anyone has any questions for my guest, uh, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org uh, and put FICA in the subject line, and I'll be sure to get the question to Gordon. Um, and we'll answer uh, at the next interview because I'm sure hoping that you'll come back again. Oh, yeah, I'll come back. Okay. I'll figure out something to talk about next time. All right, thank you. Maybe lizards. <gasps> lizards, okay. let's do lizards. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, did you know there's a legless lizard? I know very little about lizards, but I, I enjoy them at my house. Well, there's, there's, there's a legless lizard that lives in the uh, leaf duff here. And uh, it looks so just like a your snake. Leaves. Looks like just like a snake, but if you cut open the skin and pull it aside, you'll find little tiny legs inside, which are no longer used. I see. It's it's they've been lost evolutionarily. Okay, we'll talk lizards at the next one. Well, yeah. we'll do reptiles. Let's say reptiles. Okay, it sounds good. Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put FICA in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.